this is your first uh, uh, appearance before the Academy after you were formally introduced. Um, I, I'm happy to say that the president of the Academy, General Joransson, has, uh, has accepted to say a few words of, of gratitude that you have joined us now and that you are ready to address the Academy. So Sverker, over to you. Thank you very much, Lars Erik, and, and members, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to today's meeting. And uh, as president of the Swedish Royal Academy on War Science, it provides me great pleasure, uh, but also honor to greet our call member, Dr. Ian Anthony. Welcome to the Academy, now formally for, for this briefing as well. Welcome, Ian. Uh, Dr. Anthony, as most of you very well know, is the program director for European security and has also been the acting director of, of CIPRI. Uh, and he is specialized at arms control, disarmament, export control and nuclear security. And many of us have heard him speak before concerning uh, nuclear arms control, uh, as we did in a seminar, I think it's now a year ago, almost, if not more in these times. Some would argue that time passes too slowly at the moment, but I would say time flies anyway. So uh, sometimes you realize it when you look it in the mirror and realize that you are not 25 years old anymore. But, but <clears throat> apart from that, uh, it will be very interesting for us all to hear you address us today, Ian, concerning CBRN threats and also with a Swedish perspective. So from me and all the members of the Academy, feel warmly welcome. We are very happy to have you here and, and listen to your words. So welcome, Ian. So with uh, no further ado, I will uh, mute everyone except Ian, <laughs> uh, so that he has a good, uh, uh, good um, uh, uh, audience, uh, audio situation. And uh, then after he has spoken, I will, uh, I will say a few words. So we have more people coming in all the time. Mm -hmm. So, um, <coughs> so now you can unmute yourself, Ian. And I okay. can begin. Fine, fine, please. Okay, very good. So first of all, thank you so much for the opportunity to do this and thank you for the honor of being a, a member of the Academy. Uh, I was very, very happy um, to be able to join. Uh, for me, it was a great opportunity and I've already enjoyed the meetings that I've participated in and, and I hope I can play a full and active role in the work of the, of the Academy. Um, what I wanted to do today was to use not more than 30 minutes um, really to address what are now an accumulation of cases of attacks on politically exposed persons using very specialized CBRN materials. That's what I really am, am getting at with the term CBRN threats short of war. Um, we have enough of these cases now uh, accumulated over time, not only the, the two or three most recent ones, uh, that we probably do need to give a bit more systematic thought to this as a problem. Um, I want to start by essentially looking briefly at the way in which our thinking about security threat has changed and evolved. 
um, and to incorporate into that a, a brief focus on, on the term resilience and, and what it means in contemporary usage. Uh, then to give a, a very brief overview of the, the catalog of CBRN attacks that I've, that I've mentioned. There, there isn't time to go into detail on, on all of them, of course. So what I've tried to do is pick out what seem to me some salient features uh, that make them worth uh, focusing on in more detail. Um, and then to pick out some of the issues which are raised, and there are many. Again, it's not possible to go into great detail in the time available, but to raise some of the points uh, which I think come out of these attacks as worthy of closer attention. Um, so maybe to begin just by saying a few words about how the thing about security threat has evolved really since the end of the Cold War, when I think everybody acknowledged that the traditional way of looking at this was inadequate, um, that without a, an adversary against which you could benchmark, um, the focus on intention and as a way of measuring threat uh, was no longer satisfactory. We had no credible alternative at the time. So if you remember the expression was often used, the, our enemy is uncertainty. Um, within a relatively short space of time, a new adversary appeared with uh, mass impact terrorist attacks. So there's a return of agency, but of a different kind, um, a threat which uh, shifts shape and evolves and where it's not possible to identify with sufficient um, detail uh, the precise nature of the adversary to allow a kind of decisive confrontation. And then later still, the return of agency of a different kind, where in the last few years, I think it's reasonable, no one would contest that Russia, as well as Western countries, now benchmark threat against each other. Um, but they do so using different parameters from the past. Um, so we have essentially no binary model of peace and war. Um, but we have instead a kind of um, gradient, which includes uh, competition in something which is short of war, but which has certain military characteristics and military dimensions, as well as all of the features of so-called hybrid confrontation that we're becoming familiar with. So if agency has returned, um, it's in a different format. Um, I wanted to try and calibrate in a way, a sort of taxonomy of threat from a Swedish perspective, um, using the national security strategy as a point of departure. Because I think if you look at the content of that document, it does give you a reasonable picture of how Sweden looks at the evolving nature of threat. And I think you can identify in that document a significant number of kind of headlines um, the first of them, I would say, is a sort of general or global threat. So in the context of what we're talking about, um, it would, of course, be extremely negative if the idea was to become normalized that um, attacks on politically exposed persons, assassinations or, or attempted assassinations, was becoming normalized in some way. Um, also a threat to principles and norms. Um, Sweden depends very much on stable international framework um, for cooperation on equitable terms and so pays close attention to um, norms and rules at an international level and of course in this area, particularly with chemical weapons, 
since the 1980s, people have worked extremely hard to create a very powerful norm against the use of chemical weapons in any context. Um, you can also see in that document concern about threat to reputation. Um, Sweden is a country which has built its brand, if you like, on the good faith implementation of rules that are freely entered into. So anything that Sweden did which failed to implement an agreement uh, would definitely be a, th a threat to reputation. Um, then, of course, there are threats of a more direct physical kind. You, you can see in the document very plainly um, that there's a responsibility to protect people and property in Sweden from dangers of a direct physical kind. Um, and you also see uh, a reference there to indirect physical threat that Sweden is a fully internationalized country really with uh, assets and citizens distributed around the world. Um, and those Swedish assets and citizens also need to be protected in some way. Um, there is a, an understanding of remote threat that in a world where news travels very fast, an event which occurs in a dis distant location can have a local impact politically, for example, or socially. Um, but there's also a very clear understanding that the hierarchy of threats prioritizes the neighborhood. Um, that Swedish uh, interests are really so closely integrated with uh, Nordic Baltic neighbors, um, with the European Union and with the wider Europe, uh, that the neighborhood threats are the highest priority or, or meeting the, the neighborhood threats. Uh, and then there's a reference to um, societal threat and, and protecting those things which you need in order to have a normal uh, working society. And, and this is what now I think is often termed flow security. Um, so you have quite a detailed taxonomy in the national security strategy of, uh, of an approach to contemporary threat. And you also have an understanding of uh, resilience, which is not only reactive, but also proactive. Um, and understanding that in a complex modern society, there's an enormous and expanding number of potential targets for malicious actors. And so modern society has a kind of structural vulnerability built into it. Um, contemporary threats can't be defeated in a comprehensive way. There is no decisive battle leading to complete victory. And so it's very important to focus on uh, what the document calls the um, collective resilience of society, meaning not just the capacity to respond, but also to build the capabilities and the frameworks that you need for response, but also pre prevention. And it also has a psychological dimension. In a country like Sweden, where for decades now, society and citizens are uh, used to thinking of themselves as safe, um, the idea that there are threats out there against which you simply can't be protected is psychologically difficult. So that's the kind of framework which I think the national um, security strategy sets. And into that framework, I'd just like to say some words now about these um, recent CBRN attacks on, on um, politically exposed persons. As I was mentioning, we have now a significant catalogue of these you can think of the poisoning of Viktor Yushchenko in, uh, in Ukraine during the election campaign. Um, the assassination of Alexander Litvinenko in the United Kingdom. 
um, the assassination of King Jong-nam, the half-brother of the ruler of North Korea in Malaysia. Um, the attack, of course, on Sergei Skripal. Um, the attack on Alexei Navalny. Uh, and then there are other cases which are slightly ambiguous. Um, because it was so long ago and it was never properly investigated, we never really got an understanding of the attack on Mr. Arafat, Yasser Arafat although there's a strong suspicion that he was poisoned. Um, we have the reopening of some cases in Europe, in Bulgaria, for example, after the Skripal attack, where cases which were essentially dismissed have now been reopened because there is new information. So we're beginning to build a catalog of cases which suggest that this is not a one-off thing, uh, but something that we need to think about. Um, if we think about some of the characteristics of these attacks? What are the things that they have in common? Uh, well, first of all, in each case, there's a possible motive which points to state involvement. So this differentiates them in a way from uh, a lot of the work which has been done on combating mass impact terrorism, including using uh, CBRN materials. Um, the attacks use a sophisticated, uh, highly lethal, man-made um, material. So again, this is different from uh, concerns which we had about, for example, chemical terrorism, which would probably use normal industrial chemicals. These are very specialized materials. Uh, the means of, of delivery are targeted but unusual. Uh, these are not weapons as we normally think of them. It's a question of poisoning of food or um, smearing of a substance onto somebody, onto the skin, or onto a surface that's touched. And although the attacks are targeted, they all take place, or they have all taken place, in, in spaces where the public is exposed to danger. Um, in cafes, in restaurants, in public um, parks. Um, so these are all places where there's a jeopardy for the public, even if the attack itself is is highly targeted. Um, and the issues that these attacks raise really cover a wide spectrum. Um, if we think first about prevention, the most obvious point is that the attacks weren't prevented. Uh, if we think, for example, about uh, the Litvinenko case or the um, Skripal case, these highly lethal, uh, very specialized materials moved across multiple borders without being detected. And uh, they were carried, we think, by individuals who were quite easily identified as members of a foreign intelligence service who moved without surveillance or hindrance. Um, so the most obvious point about prevention was that even though someone like Mr. Skripal, who was under state protection, um, uh, was known to be a, a high risk um, individual. A second point was about, is about um, first response. Um, they really demonstrate the need for um, timely identification of a very unusual material. The UK, where some of these attacks took place, has some advantages in this respect. You have the atomic weapons establishment and you have the laboratories at Porton Down. So the UK is one of a very, very small number of countries which has highly 
specialized facilities that are able to undertake the type of analysis that would lead you quickly to understand what the material is. Um, rapid toxicology and material analysis is obviously a challenge. Um, even in the case like um, uh, Litvinenko, it was more than a month before some detailed analysis was done of material samples. And um, you have the problem of wide area scanning. Um, the materials, when the scanning was done, were not only present in the location of the attack, but across considerable geographical space. In the case of Skripal, uh, quite large parts of a small city had to be closed for a period while um, analysis was being done. In the Litvinenko case, an entire London borough essentially became a crime scene. Um, there's also the problem of how to manage a criminal investigation under those conditions where a scene is not only um, a public hazard because of the nature of the material, but it's also a crime scene where forensic analysis has to be carried out. And you have the technical problem of how you actually carry out forensic analysis on items which have to be preserved as evidence, but which are also clearly very dangerous. Um, the cases illustrate what challenges can arise in terms of site recovery. Um, the recovery operation after the Skripal attack, for example, was extremely expensive and it took a very long time. Um, that was partly because of the political guidance which was given to the responsible agencies. Um, for political reasons, the guidance was that a public space had to be cleared and made safe to the point where there was zero risk to the public. And for the agencies that created a huge challenge because zero risk required them to do a very, very detailed cleaning job. They suddenly had to clean restaurants, houses, um, municipal equipment, uh, which they didn't have the equipment, um, the training, uh, or the rules of operating procedures uh, to really manage. And they were told to do this, um, as I say, to a, to a standard which, which involved zero risk to the public. Uh, so preparing these specialized agencies was a huge challenge. Um, in terms of attribution, uh, a new range of challenges emerged. Uh, who is responsible for this attack? Um, you have, of course, the, the work which is done by the specialized agencies that I referred to. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, the judgment was made about attribution based on so-called balance of probabilities. Uh, it wasn't based on the standard of evidence that you might expect in a court of law, for example, of beyond reasonable doubt. Um, one consequence of that was an immediate counter-narrative from the identified party, 
who insisted that if you didn't have proof beyond reasonable doubt, then in fact your findings were political and couldn't be taken seriously. Uh, and immediately after the attribution, you have the spread in media and social media of perhaps 10, 12, 14 alternative explanations of how this attack could have happened. Some of them quite fantastic, but intended to kind of muddy the waters and uh, reduce the clarity of any subsequent discussion about what to do. Um, so you have a whole range of issues also then, not just about the uh, criminal consequences of attribution, uh, but also about the political response. Uh, those are both domestic, as I say, how, as I mentioned before, uh, how do you balance the political uh, imperative to reassure the public um, with realistic and manageable guidance that you can give to the specialized authorities? Um, but you also have the international dimension, um, mobilizing support in different frameworks. So if you think of some of the recent cases, they've actually led to uh, the imp the imposition of escalating range of sanctions against Russia, uh, coordination of the European Union, United States, and now of course the United Kingdom together with other countries. Uh, they've involved extensive work in the framework of the OPCW. Um, and they've involved a continuous effort to try and counter these um, narratives which are out there in order to uh, reduce clarity and, uh, and blunt the assessment of what's happened. Um, so if we try and bring all of that together, uh, um, what we have now is a significant catalogue of events, but nevertheless, you would still, I think, have to say that while these are high impact events when they happen, they are low probability events. It's not the case that these are things which are likely to happen. And so to what extent can you really devote resources to preparing for something which has a low probability, even if you understand that the consequences should it happen uh, will be high? It's a difficult judgment. Um, the point about state involvement, I think really differentiates this from all of the work which has been done in the field of counterterrorism. The involvement of a state actor uh, changes the nature of the national security problem. Um, you have this interface between uh, national security policy, uh, criminal law, and, um, and uh, uh, defense, the practical management of defense, so that it's quite difficult to classify these attacks into one of those areas. Uh, these are events which cross the boundaries between these different types of um, security policy um, files. Um, and it seems to me that the way to approach this would be to try to design and exercise a national response. Um, I don't know if this has actually been done, whether it's something that the academy could think about, for example. Uh, but to design and implement uh, a national exercise with international participation, to think through the various challenges, should such an event occur in Sweden, or should Sweden be directly involved in such an event, uh, is just something I'd like to put on the table as perhaps worth thinking about 
uh, in terms of a practical operational approach to, to dealing with this challenge. So with that, um, thank you so much for your attention and uh, I'd like to return the floor to Lars Sherik. Thank you so much, Ian. Um, and uh, let me say that you can already now uh, in the chat uh, register your, your interest to say something. Uh, let me just uh, start by uh, mentioning to you that I now know Ian since uh, 15 years. Uh, he came to me uh, together with uh, Alison Bales uh, in 2006, I think. Uh, to discuss uh, what uh, the EU could do in order to upgrade the knowledge about CBRN in uh, third countries. And now, uh, some 15 years later, this uh, work is going on in 60 countries, something like that, around the world. But not so much as we sh it should be the case inside the EU itself. And it's, of course, very sad that uh, precisely the country which now has enormous experience of this unfortunate experience. The United Kingdom is no longer a part of the European Union. We suffer from that, I think, not least as Swedes very much. And it's, it's, it should be said here. Um, so you were then working on how to upgrade uh, using also CIPRI expertise, following on to the work of Adam Daniel Rotfeldt as previous director or longtime director of, the, of CIPRI uh, how can we help to upgrade knowledge and awareness of these types of threats that we, we see coming up upon us, not least after 9-11 and so on. And uh, I remember many bilaterals when I was posted in Brussels, I was posted in Brussels these years with our US friends uh, coming over. Uh, Dav Zakheim uh, will know about uh, all the assistance that was given from US side to help to upgrade awareness and attention to the kind of flows that you were mentioning, the, the, the sensational fact that you're able to travel over many borders on land with even, you know, uh, people that should be known to intelligence with these kind of materials without being caught in the process. It's, it's, it's rather sad. And it, in, it, it um, refers to the concept that you also mentioned I think Carl Bildt mentioned it fairly early in one of his pro project syndicate articles on flow security over five or six years ago, and which we have picked up in, in, also in the SES project uh, as a serious problem of security for us. Uh, I didn't, you know, illustrated by COVID-19, everything we have in terms of cross-border negative flows, but also essential flows to us. So that's uh, the taxonomy you mentioned, the, the way we fit this into our national security strategy, which is now being updated, the way we input into the, the work that, uh, for instance, Katarina Engberg here present has studied, uh, how does the security union fit with the defense union concepts in the European Union? Where do you suppose that this should be dealt with in the in the EU, on the EU level, etc. So there are many questions in terms of how to frame the discussion to get the necessary attention on the level of decision makers. Um, the, the, the problem of actually being able to uh, identify and deal with the problem is illustrated by the fact that you mentioned uh, that um, we have on the one hand, uh, we have 
so far been blessed with limited, after all, uh, even if they have been devastating in a way, but they, they, it could have been much worse if, uh, if some of these attacks have been taking place in, in major population centers, then you come to a, uh, an issue that which has been dealt with in successive CIPRI conferences on the security of cities, uh, which uh, clearly is, is something we need to devote much more attention. And it, uh, it's something we talk about in the EU under the heading of multi-sectoral crisis, that it's not something that just uh, addresses one type of specialization in terms of mitigation or response, but many, many different types of people will be have to be engaged in crisis management, including the military, including the, the police and so on. Now, I have a few friends in the police who tell me, you know, that we are nowhere on this as of now. We have a couple of experts here and there, I mean, in, in FUI, in UMU and so on, but we are nowhere in terms of uh, identifying these problems should they come to us. We are all already seeing Chechens, for instance, in Sweden being chased and uh, brutally attacked, uh, but we haven't seen the kind of attacks or visible uh, important uh, you know, uh, people associated with state conflict that you are referring to in this, in this study. So we are, we are still early in the process here. You say that it's a low probability thing, but it certainly could be a very high impact thing in terms of the problem that we are dealing with a lot in the academy now, namely the issue of uh, sort of a war in peacetime that we are talking about something which is a uh, which really is, is much more than a crisis. It's, a, it's an intentional. And it's a very ominous uh, thing in terms of the, uh, the fact that you can also, to a certain extent, if you wish, do with this in an anonymous way so that deterrence is very difficult, response is very difficult and so on. So all of this uh, points to the fact that these are the things that need to be in introduced into a larger paradigm of things that we need to prepare to defend ourselves uh, way before uh, war. Uh, uh, and uh, the question is, how can we do it uh, when we start from such a low level? And let me finish by the question, isn't it actually then going to be necessary to have some sort of pooling of resources? The way you mentioned it briefly, I mean, the Western world needs to come together and find ways to pool resources to have rapid alerts, rapid diagnosis. We are not going to be able to set up an atomic weapon establishment in Sweden or the kind of laboratories you have in the UK. Uh, we will need to, to depend on, on, on people who are willing to help us from other parts of Europe and it seems that uh, this might not even be possible to do inside the European Union but you, you probably need to go beyond uh, using the transatlantic community uh, cooperation to do this but uh, over to participants uh, let's see if I have any uh, I don't have any uh, requests for the floor yet but I uh, hope for one or two or three Perhaps I could just give you an initial uh, response, Lars Eric, um, because a couple of the points you make, I think, are, are highly pertinent. Um, uh, one is the importance of protecting the integrity and building the capability of specialized international organizations. Uh, the Organization for Prohibition of Chemical Weapons would be an obvious example. 
They did play a role in investigations on request. And it's very important that the findings which come out of those organizations are technically credible and politically uh, defensible to avoid this uh, counter narrative that this is essentially a Western political exercise. Uh, in terms of pooling of resources, uh, the, the efforts that you talked about, which were the context in which we first met, were very much outward orientated. We were thinking about scenarios in Asia, in the Middle East, because at that time, the concern about mass impact terrorism really focused on those regions. Uh, and we were thinking about um, contingencies where you could expect normal industrial chemicals or materials to be used. Uh, for this to be happening inside the European Union using such special materials poses different kinds of problems. Um, you do have within the EU the so-called CBRN Action Plan, but it's essentially a technical networking at operational level, um, which lacks the kind of high uh, political attention which is really needed to mobilize the resources around this. So the principal work which was done by you when you were at the Commission was rather outward focused and we really need to think now about what we're doing collectively inside the European Union. What does the, just one more question before I ask uh, um, uh, Patrick uh, to come in. Um, what does the addition of the E, uh, CBRN E mean here? We are talking about explosive devices also here as, a, as an addition to the CBRN acronym. I mean, that's something that really has hit us in Sweden already, but not for the, for the reasons that are associated to this list, perhaps. Question to me, I mean, that's much more, uh, as you say, that's much more a high probability event because uh, we have had a significant number of use of explosives in all kinds of contexts inside the European Union and inside Sweden. Um, the use of uh, improvised explosive devices um, imported hand grenades is now a regular occurrence in gang conflicts in Stockholm, in Malmö. Mm. So um, this is a high probability event, but it doesn't rise to the level of national emergency, at least not yet. That doesn't mean it's not serious, but it has some different characteristics. Can I ask uh, Patrick and then uh, uh, Dov? Um, start with Patrick, uh, who has a, a comment on the chat. Thank you, and, and uh, my comment that I wrote in the, in the chat is that it's a reflection that we recently saw in the declaration of intent between Sweden and Finland when it comes to civil defense. Uh, this area, CBRM, was uh, specifically mentioned as an area to develop cooperation between Sweden and Finland. So I expect that we will see uh, things happening here, and that could be... Uh, pooling and sharing uh, resources. Um, and in a wider reflection, I do believe that we in the Western world would need more of a common response when incidents uh, like that one we have seen in, in, in UK with the Skripal uh, to, to, to be able to react swiftly and together to mark that this is unacceptable to use these kinds of methods against us. Uh, I was very happy to see the solidarity of, of uh, uh, sending back diplomats from a lot of countries after the Skripal case, but I think we should develop uh, this as a collective tool 
in order to, to counter different kind of hybrid activities that goes beyond what we would say is an acceptable threshold. Thank you. I think uh, maybe we can link that uh, comment up with Dove's uh, idea about sanctions. Yes, well, thank you. Uh, uh, my question was roughly similar. Um, maybe there, you know, what you've been talking about is essentially how to prevent um, through a variety of active means these kinds of offenses. But uh, another way to do it is, is to deter states from actually trying. And I think that links to the previous point. My question was, could we, what do you think about a mechanism, is it feasible, um, that would essentially unite a group of countries that would be committed upfront to uh, responding with sanctions or some other kinds of response in the event of something like this taking place? Uh, an offending state seeing that this was already a mechanism in place might be more hesitant to try in the first place. So it kind of links to the previous question. What are your thoughts about that sort of uh, setup? Yeah, I think it's very, very important to incorporate that into the discussion and think through the implications. I mean, we have seen an escalating set of sanctions, for example, post Navalny. I think the Biden administration just yesterday expanded the number of, of um, Russian citizens and entities who are subject to targeted sanctions. Um, it has a number of dimensions. Um, I think if you look at the dynamic, for example, in the states parties to the Chemical Weapons Convention, uh, Russia has signaled that if attention in that grouping focuses too much on Navalny, uh, it might actually lead to Russian withdrawal from the convention. This is beginning to get a little bit too close to Mr. Putin's desk. Um, uh, and, and there's a threat to the Russian participation in the convention. Okay, we can reach a judgment about to what extent that's a bluff and to what extent that's real. Um, but I think it's a question that needs thinking through. Um, you could, in theory, push to a vote in the um, CWC context uh, a decision on sanctions. Uh, you, you'd have to think through how to balance the deterrent effect against the impact on the convention. Good, any more? <clears throat> you have exhausted this topic. <laughs> That's very, very admirable after only 40 minutes. Uh, we have been in, a, uh, in an earlier meeting as well before some of us uh, internal business, but uh, Anna has a, pro a question that I would like to give the floor to her. Thank you. Thank you and uh, thank you and a very interesting presentation. Uh, lots of thoughts uh, in my head, but I was thinking about, uh, as you proposed, uh, you know, try to design and implement a national response. Uh, it's an interesting idea. What could you elaborate a bit on what are the lessons learned in your view? If you, you have this sequences catalog now of, of events, uh, just uh, comparing Skripal to Navalny, for instance, uh, what do we know that would be useful 
to design such a response in your view, or are, has, there, has there been lots of you know, lessons learned uh, studies from this that could be useful? And then I'm puzzled. I mean, I think Dov has an excellent point and, and I think is having a prepared set of sanctions, for instance, for these kind of events uh, would be useful. But then there are all points on our state actors, is mainly one actor <laughs> acting. Uh, and what we don't do perhaps is that we don't combine these kind of attacks with other kinds of attacks. So you would have a, an escalation, but within various areas, you would have cyber attacks, dis disinformation operations. You would have this kind of thing and it's still the same state actor behind it, but we are, we are fragmented and slow in our response. So could we move around this somehow? It's, it's a continuation of the same subject, I guess, but two aspects of it, lessons learned and, and uh, can we have more of a, eagle's eye on, on what's going on. Yeah, I think your second point is very well taken because I've focused on these attacks which involve very specialized materials. But if you look, for example, at the case in Berlin where um, the, the means of attack was, was shooting, um, much more simple. It's actually a bit of a puzzle why such a complicated and and a difficult method was chosen to carry out an attack, it would have been much more straightforward simply to shoot the people. Um, so that's a puzzle by itself, why this was the chosen method. Um, perhaps it is somehow the deniability, or I'm, I'm not sure, but uh, that's worth investigating, not just in the CBRN context, but targeted killing of politically exposed persons to come at it from that angle would be very interesting. Um, Lars Eric also mentioned the attacks on, um, on, on Chechens who've been involved in the conflict in the 90s. Um, I guess the lesson we would draw from that is that Russia has a long memory and they're not going to let these things go. Um, the people who've been targeted are going to be pursued. Uh, in terms of your first point, I think that's why an, a national exercise with international participation would be interesting. I think that would be a very good way of revealing all of the different dimensions of preparing a national response. What could be done using existing capabilities? Uh, Sweden has some sophisticated laboratories. It's not the case that there's no technical infrastructure for sure. Um, so what could be done using existing capabilities? Where are the gaps in capabilities? Um, and how might those be filled either nationally or through international cooperation? Um, the bilateral relationship with Finland, perhaps the Nordic Baltic context, these would be very interesting to explore. Uh, if something is moved physically across borders, they're going to come through those Nordic Baltic countries. Um, so how to work more together in the, in the immediate neighborhood would be an interesting dimension. Um, so I think an exercise might be a way of revealing all of the different elements of national response. Uh, Robert. <clears throat> Uh, can you hear me now? Yes. <clears throat> I think it's fairly obvious why the Russians are using such exotic and rare materials. It is to send us a message. Uh, <clears throat> there have been, uh, they have very skilled assassins, and there have been very many deaths of exiled Russians, not only, but a lot of them in England. And a lot of them have looked like suicides or natural causes, but or still suspect. I think Bill Browder notes about a dozen uh, such deaths uh, in his book. 
and that was uh, the case in um, with Chechen in, in Berlin. So when they when they choose uh, radioactive polonium that can be identified back to the very reactor that produced it, or Novichok, it is a calling card. Uh, and that calling card says, we can do this in your countries and you can't do anything about it. Ha ha ha. So it's, it's adding insult to injury. And I think we should treat it like the challenge it is. Thank you. Any other comments? May I? Love Sharik. May I say? Do you, yes. Um, I would like to, to raise another question. First of all, it is for me an opportunity to, to uh, congratulate to Ian. He prepared something in a very professional way, systematic, and uh, in my view, it is to the point. However, it is an isolated aspect, but uh, the question is of, of broader nature. It is only one of the whole new uh, activity of Russia. I would like not to say strategy because it is much more reactive than active. And uh, reactive for the reason that my, my understanding is that Russia is demonstrating its weakness. Uh, and uh, frustration of the kind of the uh, uh, lack of self-certainty. In other words, uh, it is uh, a kind of the uh, complex of inferiority. I uh, recently, I followed uh, a lot of the Russian discussions by uh, in Russian television and uh, what is written in Russia. And it seems to me that they are motivated by three different elements. One is that they are uh, afraid that Russia is uh, on declining uh, road to be eliminated among the group of the global powers and the only a Russian element, which is still very serious. It is, I would say, uh, militarization, but in general, it is high level technology addressed to the military uh, production, military uh, success. And the Germans would say that it is escape to forward, flucht nach vorn. Uh, in a sense, uh, Russia is uh, uh, very much afraid of the internal situation. Uh, I would like not to develop, but simply to make the point that it is a reaction to the internal situation. And uh, as the result, many people who are assassinated, who are killed, they are uh, in order to give signals for the Russians that they are ready uh, to kill everybody who is doing something against us because they are uh, at the moment uh, in the process of uh, 
a re, uh, redefinition of the whole uh, strategy, namely to be uh, self-isolated intentionally. In other words, in their view, the uh, partnership with the West and openness, in fact, it is counterproductive for the, uh, for the main aims they have in, uh, in recent 20 years after President Putin took power. In other words, uh, uh, they el eliminated many people in Russia, like Nemtsov, and recently Navalny, mainly for the reason that they were individuals who were considered by many as alternative. They wanted to eliminate alternatives. In other words, this is point number one. Point number two is that for them, legitimization of the Russian position in uh, uh, among the uh, international community since 75 years is the victory over Third Reich. In other words, a position which Russia achieved at the end of the Second World War, it is for them a kind of the icon and it, could, it should be continued forever. And they're very much afraid that at the moment people are much more speaking about the role of United States, China, European Union, to much greater extent, many other great nations. Uh, I would like to say that uh, for them, uh, a kind of the legitimization of their position as the global power is a central point. They demonstrated their power in Syria, in Venezuela, and in many other points, not for the reason of, as many people are saying, geopolitics, but, but rather to demonstrate that they are ready to operate in different uh, fields uh, far of the Russian territory. And uh, the last but not least is uh, the point that reassessment of the uh, Russian strategy within, within Russia and in their relations with the outside world is uh, the a kind of the uh, byproduct of very uh, very serious problems they have they were unable to develop reforms especially economic reforms but also and it is to much greater extent uh, the problem of the reform of the running the country uh, uh, decentralization not, not to speak about democratization, but first of all, decentralization of the huge country. They are very much afraid. They're, they are confronted now with the possible collapse of uh, the federation. And they would like, they would like to uh, not to repeat the uh, experience of the Soviet Union. In other words, for them, it is a main problem. Uh, and what they are doing, it is uh, to great extent, in my view, the subordination of the uh, interna international activities 
and foreign and security policy for the internal aims. Uh, and here, uh, this is my last point, is uh, to say that about Friedrich the Great, uh, it was saying that Prussia has had at that time uh, uh, the, the state, the country, who did not possess the army, but army possessed the, uh, the country. And now I would like to paraphrase that in Russia, they replaced not the army, but special services, uh, intelligence, counterintelligence, all the special operations, special services, they possess the country. And the leader of the country is representing, I would say, those special services who are, uh, in fact, uh, running the country in a way what uh, was illustrated at the moment by, by Ian in his introduction. Thank you. No, thank you. I, I mean, it touches on points that we've talked about in other contexts that the the boundary between internal security and external security is not just eroded, but perhaps even removed entirely. So this uh, signaling with both an internal and an external um, um, vector uh, is an illustration of that. But I guess one conclusion would be that um, part of the response cannot be to signal to Russia that Western countries will remove their support for any individual who's deemed to be um, a challenge to the regime. Um, the, 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 report, the support for people who have a legitimate uh, basis for complaint inside Russia. Yes, uh, I, I, I agree with you. But I would like to say that uh, the day before yesterday, I listened to the discussion in the first program of the Russian television that in fact they are speaking about the traitors, uh, renegades, uh, and all of them are not somewhere in the West, uh, those who left the country, but they are speaking about people who are surrounding Putin. In other words, they are speaking of the leadership that uh, Putin should eliminate them. It reminds me, I would say to some extent, uh, what happened with Stalin in 37, 38, who was at the beginning of the uh, cleaning uh, <laughs> the, the army totally, uh, at the moment in Russia, army is, I would say, uh, a, a kind of the uh, untouchable. It is uh, uh, not involved in, in the whole this uh, game, but as far as the uh, Russian strategy, they try to construct, I would say, something new, what will be very dangerous. And in my view, what you presented here, it is the problem, how to put it in the broader broader picture, how to deal with Russia, because definitely one should uh, uh, demonstrate a, a kind of the uh, very independent, not to permit them to them, because they, they are doing something and always it is a kind of response and there is no need to respond to them. There is a need to, to say what, what is our strategy, how to put them where is the place for the country who is responsible or in case it is irresponsible and they would like to be in irresponsible to say that the, they will pay very high price for that. 
So, uh, I don't have any more requests for comments. Uh, some of the points that you made, Adam, Daniel, uh, are the ones that have also been discussed by several of our members uh, recently, also publicly. I'm referring, for instance, to the excellent podcast made by Gudrun Persson, who is present here uh, in the meeting between the Commission and the Atlantic Council recently, Anna organized uh, with, uh, with others. And, uh, and uh, so there, are, there is a lot of attention to the problem here, how to frame, so to say, what we, what we, we, we that we can, must put things into the context, the broader context, and uh, see that we are talking about the peacetime problem for us, not a wartime problem necessarily, but a peacetime problem, uh, which is very closely linked to the, to the stability of our Eastern neighbor. Any further comments before? we close for today. I don't see any. Uh, Sverker, would you like to say a final word to our participants? Uh, well, once again, thank you very much, Ian, for, for the uh, very interesting uh, presentation and also for all the good questions that was put up here. Uh, in, in other words, another example of the challenging environment that we're trying to understand. And, and sometimes we do in parts at least, but not to an extent, but a, a fruitful way of doing it is to get together in this way. And I certainly hope that we will be able to get physically together for, for rewarding discussions and intellectual talks later on this year. So. Once again, thank you, Ian, and, and warmly welcome to the Academy, one of the best places we have to, to <laughs> use in, in this format in, in Sweden. So thank, thank you, you all and stay healthy and be safe. Thank you. And the, uh, the uh, uh, manuscript for this presentation is under finalization. According to the rules of the Academy, it will be ready for publishing. And we hope for priority treatment by the uh, editor of the, uh, of the academy proceedings, of course.